0: You can clap for that. Okay, hey, so we stood on the stage just a couple weeks ago, and we commissioned a group of young people to head to Ball State, and that was their um, report back to us about how it went. Um, probably three or four years ago, I had a chance to uh, be in Florida at the home offices of Crew, uh, and just we were talking about a lot of things while I was there, um, and I don't think they knew that one of our strategic partners uh, was the Millers at Ball State, and they started talking about this one university that seems to have just had a more than usual uh, good impact through crew and just what, a, what an amazing ministry it is and really became a model for how all of the campuses ought to work and it turns out it was our partners the Millers in Ball State and um, I just say that to say we have great partners and your contributions is what allows us to support them. So the young people went down there, and they did contact work for for Crew, which is the old Campus Crusade ministry. They met with freshmen. They helped move people in. They unloaded cars and helped get stuff into the dorm rooms. As you saw, they did a barbecue for the kids. They, it just it's a great way for them to serve. And one of the big wins for us is we take these high school kids down there, and it sort of helps them to see uh, what it looks like to connect with. A group of people who are following Christ when they get to college. So whether it's crew or or any other of those ministries, it helps them to realize that these uh, groups exist on the campus and it's important for them to get plugged in. So I think we're helping the, the kids to even navigate how to how to go to college and still walk out their faith. So just thank you for sending them. Thank you for supporting them. Um, God really used it in a powerful way. Hey, open your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter nine. As you know, we're walking through the book of Luke and... Uh, Uh, We're going to cruise through um, the rest of chapter 9 today, but we're going to start reading in verse 28. And while you're looking for that, I just want to remind you, encourage you. Uh, that we want you to check in on social media, we want you to check in on Facebook, we want you to post, if you hear something this morning, if John said something that stirred in your heart, if you saw something in the lyrics of a song and sang it and it meant something to you, post those, if I say something or the Spirit uses my words to move you, we would love for you to post that. Um, but the other thing I want you to hear is, we are moving away from a bulletin. Uh, we spend over $4,000 a year to print that piece of paper that you get every Sunday, and we um, we know that most of you don't read it. I'm not trying to shame you, it's just reality. Um, And it really is sort of archaic when you think about where we are uh, these days with electronic media. So we are moving to electronics. So I say all that to say, if you uh, would like to stay connected to us, then like our Facebook page, uh, subscribe to Twitter at any moment, I'm not gonna have any idea what I'm talking about, but whatever electronic thing, that you use, let us know. If it's email, we're going to continue to email updates, but we know the younger generation is already like shrugging their shoulders when we say we sent you an email. They're like, I haven't read an email all summer. So we just know that things are changing. We're moving away from paper. And if you want to know what's going on at Grace, then you need to sort of tell us, hey, here's the best way to connect with me. I'm following you on Twitter. I'm following you on Facebook. If you want to friend request me, um, that will also help you just to stay uh, in tune, if you will, of all the things that we're doing. Okay, so Luke 9, 28, I'm going to read through 36. So it says, now about eight days after these sayings, he, we're talking about Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but now they became fully awake. They saw the glory and the two men that stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let me just pray for us this morning. Lord, I just pray uh, that you would open our minds and our hearts to the word of God. We just know right now as we sit in these seats that if you don't reveal truth, that we don't get truth. It doesn't matter what I say, that it's the work of the Spirit. So we open our hearts, we open our minds to you and ask that you would be our teacher, that you would be our guide. We pray, Lord, that the word of God would be our rule, that the Spirit of God would be our guide. We pray that we would leave this room different than we came because we've interacted with the living God through your Spirit that I pray that you would settle the hearts of people in this room that came in with so many distractions, things that are keeping them from tuning in completely. Just push those away and allow us just to be fully present for these next few minutes as we unpack this great story from the book of your Gospel, Luke. We pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so as I sat with this passage earlier this week, I began to ask myself, what is the point of the Transfiguration. I mean, if you think about the Transfiguration, it is a very wild story, right? You have Jesus and his three disciples, they go up on a mountain, and all of a sudden, Jesus is praying, and he is begins to glow, right? I mean, that's what it actually says. And if you read the other gospels, he begins to, to shine, like a, like a bright light, he begins to shine. That would be a little unsettling, right? Yep, a little unsettling. Well, then these two guys who died a long time ago are there walking around with him, that in itself would be somewhat unsettling, right? And all I'm doing is trying to get you into the story enough to realize that that this is a wild and crazy story. If you read the, the account of the Transfiguration in Matthew, it says that the disciples fell on their faces and were terrified. Now that makes sense to me. When Moses and Elijah show up and start walking around with this glowing Jesus, terrified would be what I'm feeling, right? The Gospel of Mark says that Peter was just started talking because he did not know what to say because he was terrified. I love that. Like, he's so afraid, he just figures, well, maybe if I just start saying something, it's all going to get better. Not that I've ever done that before, but you get what's going on here. So if you put yourself in your story, you w- realize that this is wild, this is supernatural. People who have passed away are, are, are walking around, they're having a conversation, but the question is, why is the, transforma- or the transfiguration even in Scripture? Why did it even happen, and what's the central message? So let's take a look. Verse 28, it says, Now about eight days uh, after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray says, now, about eight days after these sayings, so you've got to ask yourself, well, what are the sayings? And one of the things you've got to remember, you don't have to remember, but it would be helpful to remember, is that when you look at the original manuscripts of Scripture, we don't have paragraph breaks, we don't have headings. So in my Bible, right between verse 27 and 28 are these big, bold, block letters that say, the transfiguration. Right. Well, that doesn't exist in the original manuscript. So really, verse 28 is directly connected to verse 27. And keep your Bibles open today. We're going to cover a lot of ground. Like I said, I'm going to actually uh, close out with the entire chapter of uh, chapter 9. But verse 27, Jesus says these words. He's, he says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, some people read that, and they think what Jesus was saying is that the second coming, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to rise, I'm going to ascend, and then I'm going to come again, as the prophets have said, and that's going to happen before some of you who are listening to me right now die. Well, we know that can't be what Jesus was saying. Why? Because they died. So he must have been saying something else. So most scholars, and I tend to agree with them, believe that what Jesus was saying is he was prophesying about the transfiguration. He was saying, look, there's this thing that's going to happen, and some of you are going to see it. So when the disciples are there, and they're on that mountain, and they see Jesus in all of his glory, and they see Moses, and they see Elijah, they are seeing into the kingdom of God. They are seeing the way it's going to be in the kingdom going forward. They see Moses, and Moses represents the the past. He represents all that God did to, to free the people and to establish the, the people of Israel as a people group. So they, they see that, and they have Elijah there. And really, Elijah's ministry was mostly to prophesy about the end times, that very thing I was just talking about, the, the stuff that's going to happen when Jesus returns. So you have these two major figures, one representing the past, one representing the future, and they're there on the mountain, and they're walking around, and they're having a conversation with Jesus. This image has been uh, incredibly important to me this week. As many of you know, uh, we lost a great friend in Randy Reese a couple weeks ago. Uh, Meg and I drove out to Sioux Falls for his funeral. It was just—it was a beautiful service. Great thing, awesome man of God. Many of you knew uh, Randy. He's the one that wrote the stuff that we call "leading edge" that we do here. Just, uh, just a dear friend. But we got back Sunday, last Sunday. Late in the evening, came into my office Monday and started studying the Transfiguration, knowing that that's what I was going to be preaching this weekend. And the reason it's comforting to me is Moses and Elijah are alive. Look, they're having a conversation. This isn't like an illusion. This isn't some kind of vision. They're there, they're alive. They're walking with Jesus, and they're having a conversation. I felt like God whispered, I'm here, look, Doug, I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. And I don't think that's a new revelation for me, but something sort of sunk into my soul when I thought about Randy. He's alive. He's walking. He's talking. He's more alive than he's ever been. If you knew Randy, he was a great conversationalist. His thing was to sit across the table with a cup of coffee and just to have a great conversation with you. He asked the best questions. He just got right to the soul of the matter, and he called things out of people. Well, he is having those conversations. He is alive. If you have a friend, if you have a relative, if you have somebody who is dear to you who has passed on, they are not dead. They are alive. So the passage says, there's Moses, there's Elijah, and they appear in glory and spoke of his departure. Luke is the only gospel account that tells us that at the transfiguration, it tells us what the topic of conversation actually was, that they talk of his departure. The word there is the word exodus. Have you heard of the word exodus? It takes us back to the book of the Bible, the Exodus, it takes us back to the story of the Israelites when they are in bondage and, 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 and Pharaoh has them and, and God comes and God frees them, right? And so if you think about it, Jesus is, at, or the, the Exodus story is actually a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. So the climax of the Exodus story is when they find an unblemished lamb and they, slaughter the lamb, and they take the blood, and they put it over the doorpost, and then the angel of death passes over their house. They escape death, and they experience freedom. So it's all meant to point towards what Jesus is going to do. The, the blood of Jesus saves us, from; it helps us to escape death, and ushers us into freedom. So there's all of this parallel, and when you look at the transfiguration, you begin to see all of these common threads to the Exodus story. Moses is there. He was There in the Exodus story, it happens on a mountain, in the same way that the Exodus story gets its beginning on the mountain. We see faces that are radiating the glory of God. If you go back and you read, Moses would go up on the mountain, he would spend time with God, and it said when he came down, his face would glow, so much so that he'd have to wear a veil because it made the Israelites afraid of him. So we see glowing faces, we see a mountain, we see Moses there, we see a cloud that descends just like the cloud that was a part of the Shekinah glory of God in the presence of the people. So there's all these parallels, and then Peter, in his, in his mind, he sees all these parallels, and he says, I got an idea, let's build a tent, let's build a tabernacle. That's the word, tent in there. So there's all these parallels, right? And, and it makes sense that Peter would do that for Really, his whole life every year they'd celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacle, which is the Feast of Tents, where they would celebrate God's provision in the desert as the people journeyed for those 40 years. So here's the celebration going, here are all these parallels. And you look at all that, it makes for some fascinating reading. It's actually really, really cool stuff to see how God's sovereignty, to see how the Bible is one complete story and not just a bunch of random incidents. It ties, here we're tying Luke all the way back into Exodus and see how they fit together. It shows us God's sovereignty. But the question is, so What? What is what is the takeaway for us today? What is the central message of the transfiguration? Why did it happen? Why is it what what difference does it make to me and to you today? The climatic moment in this story is in verse 34 and 35. Look at it. Peter has just uh st- It's talked about building the shelters of the tabernacle, and then it reads in verse 34, as Peter was saying this, a cloud came, overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud, as I would have been. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. That's the takeaway. The word of God speaks directly to the disciples. And the reason he spoke to the disciples was to give them a word that would guide them in the days ahead and in the weeks ahead and in the years ahead as they did ministry. What he's saying, God is saying to the disciples, look, if you want to get this right, if you want to do what you need to do, then you need to know who Jesus is. He's my son, my chosen one, and you need to listen to him. There's 10 words here, and these 10 words are the key words. To navigating your faith. It's the key to seeing God do immeasurably more than you could ask, think, or imagine. If you look in your Bibles, you'll notice that those 10 words are in quotation marks. Who's being quoted? It's not a trick question. God. Seems wise to us to pay attention to words that have quotation marks around them because God said it This is my son. I wanna take you back a little bit in the story because there's something that we can easily pass over. It says that while Jesus was praying, he was transformed. The fact is, if you go back and you look at the original text, the word order in the form is, in the praying, Jesus was transformed. Isn't that fascinating? In the praying, something happens to Jesus and his whole appearance changing. In the praying, he has an encounter with God that actually transforms something. There's a pretty easy takeaway for us to hear that in the praying, God will transform who you are. In the praying, God will actually change who you are. He will change how you feel. He will change how you think. He will change your very countenance. Verse 29 says that Jesus was praying and the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. The professor of New Testament interpretation at Fuller Seminary, his name is Joel Green, and he says these words. He says, in the Old Testament and in Jewish tradition, one's face or continence is a mirror of one's heart and a manifestation of one's relationship to God. Let me say that one more time. In the Old Testament, and Jewish traditions, one face or continence is a mirror of one's heart and a manifestation of one's relationship to God. I believe this is still true today. That our face radiates something that's going on in the inside of, of who we are. And the disciples, they can see Jesus and and he, his very appearance, his face, is radiating his glory. What does that mean? What is glory? There's a fascinating thing. Started out this week on Monday, and, and I got to that section, and I was like, I have to define glory if I'm really going to be honest to the text and if I'm going to help you to understand. And an interesting thing is I started asking people, like, what is glory? And I found that we have a pretty poor understanding of what glory actually is. We sing songs here. We're going to sing a song at the end of the service, From Glory to Glory. But do we know what glory is? So Monday afternoon, I started praying about this. I I found myself even struggling to define it myself. And I said, Lord, help me to understand what what is glory? How do I talk about it on Sunday? How do I help people to to understand it? Fascinating thing is as I began to pray about it, God began to answer the question. So I'm walking down the hallway, and Norflet is probably... I don't know, four or five feet behind me, I noticed he has a book in his hand. I said, So, Nofla, what are you reading? And this is what he was reading pop it up. What on earth is glory? <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? I've never heard of this book, I've never seen this book, I didn't know this book existed. And he's like, Oh, what on earth is glory? I'm like, That is crazy. I've been spending all day trying to ask that same question. So he gave me the book. I read it in one day. It's a great book. You should read it. It's one of the Bethel people that wrote it. Fascinating read. Great read. It'll help you to understand glory. So that began to shape my understanding and how I want to talk to you about glory. And then I got home, and I had some seminary reading that I have to do, which is an understatement. But I'm reading through some of my seminary stuff, and I get to this section where a friend of mine had written, and the whole section is, what is glory? Right? So I start reading this, and my friend Vic Gordon wrote it, and, and it's really his words that I want to use. So I'm going to really quote him uh, and just steal a section of his book uh, because it helped me to understand what is glory. So God's glory shines from him, and it reflects, get that? God's glory shines from him, and it reflects his absolute uniqueness, or better said, his holiness. It reflects his grandeur, his majesty. His moral perfection or his righteousness, his utmost importance, his honor, his infinite worth, his goodness, his transcendent power, his, how almighty he is, his incomparable importance, which is he's being exalted. It, it reflects his grace and his mercy, which is his love. I'm going to keep that up for the rest of the service because I just want you to keep going back to it when you try to figure out what is glory. Another author I wrote this week said that God's glory is his infinite and his intrinsic worth. God's glory can be associated with fame or prestige or distinction. Glory can be associated with honor or position of influence. But when God says, this is my son, the chosen one, the disciples are looking at him, and they can see in Jesus, they witness his uniqueness, his grandeur, his perfection, his importance, his worth, his power, his love. They see who Jesus is. The disciples see on the mountain what my friend Randy can now see clearly. The glory of of Jesus in its fullness. Now the scriptures say that we can see this, but we only see it dimly as if in a mirror, right? And so it also says, but when we are face to face, then we're gonna see all of his glory. But here's the deal. The Bible also tells us, and this is, this is the encouragement That as we grow in our understanding of who Christ is, as we grow in our knowledge of Christ, that we grow in our knowledge of the glory of God, that this is something that can happen in ever-increasing increments, that we know the glory of God. So 2 Corinthians 4, 6, just write it down, look it up later. It says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we are exposed to the light of the world, who's the light of the world? Jesus. He said, I am the light of the world. When we are exposed to Jesus, we are given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And more and more and more, we come to know who God is. And here's the deal. As we come to know the glory of God, we begin to reflect the glory of God in our lives. People see all of those attributes of God in the way we, our continence, our face reflects God. They don't see our glory, they see the glory of God in us. So God says, This is my son, the chosen one. This is my son. Listen to him. So here's where Luke does something I think is fascinating. There is this poignant moment, this powerful moment. And I think Luke wanted us to see something. For the rest of chapter 9, he lays out just how our tendency is to not listen to Jesus. So we have story after story where people are not listening to Jesus and getting it wrong so what does that tell us that our initial response if we are not careful our knee-jerk reaction our first response is often going to be wrong so what do we need to do we need to know who jesus is and we need to stop and listen to him we would save ourselves a lot of grief and a lot of pain if we would learn to slow down and listen to jesus so Peter, he's, he's up there, and he says, hey, I got an idea. Let's build some shelters, right? And I think it's fascinating that if you look at the Gospel of Mark, it says that, that well, I'll just read it exactly how it says. He says that Peter said this because he didn't know what to say. For the record, if you don't know what to say, what should you say? Nothing. Good answer. Nothing. The best thing to do would be to not say anything and maybe even lean into the Spirit of God, be quiet, and listen to him. I hope your Bibles are open because I'm going to run through the rest of chapter 9 with you because I want you to see what Luke is trying to do. He's trying to say, look, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And if you don't listen to him, here are likely scenarios of how things are going to go for you. So there's three disciples, they come off the mountain with Jesus, right? And this guy comes up and he says, look, my son, he's, he's possessed by a demon. And your other disciples, they tried to cast him out, but they couldn't cast him out. And, and it, I don't know what their problem is, but can you do something for us? And look at verse 41. Jesus answers and he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Then he says, bring your son here. And Jesus heals his son. He, he, he casts out the demon. But Here's what I want you to see. The word twisted means distorted. It's an image of not being in tune. It's an image of not being in sync. Think of your radio having a lot of of noise, a lot of distortion in it. Unable to stay connected and listen to the spirit of God clearly. So Jesus delivers the boy and he encourages the disciples by saying, hey, This only happens by prayer and fasting. This only happens if you stay connected to me. This only happens if you have attuned your ears, which is what praying and fasting is all about, to me and to my spirit. If you want to do what I'm calling you to do, then you need to recognize who I am and you have to listen to me. You cannot do it on your own. Verse 46 An argument arises of who is the greatest. Right, what does it say? It says, an argument arises of them, which of them is the greatest? Our first reaction, our human condition, our knee-jerk reaction is to grab for power, all of us. We all wanna be in a position of authority over the people around us. We all wanna be there. It's our natural inclination. So Jesus takes the least powerful person in the room, the person with zero positional authority, a little kid, puts him on his lap, and he says these words. He says, for he who is the least among you will be the greatest. God is saying, this is my son. Listen to him. Do not grasp for power. Be a servant. Humble yourself before the Lord and let the Lord lift you up. This is not our first inclination. We have to slow down. We have to listen to him. Look, Every meeting I have ever been a part of would be better if all of us would do this. Slow down. Don't go with your first response. Listen to what the Spirit of God is saying and act only when you know what God is prompting you to say. How different would every staff meeting, every board meeting, every church meeting would be if we actually learned to apply this? I have a good friend who said he wants to get a t-shirt that says, please excuse my first reaction. I'll get there. I should get that t-shirt, right? We all have that tendency to say the wrong thing, to do the wrong thing, and have to say, yeah, I don't think that was the Spirit of God. I'm sorry. And come back, but we would save ourselves a lot of trouble. Verse 49. I love this. There's a John, he wants to rebuke a man who's casting out demons because he's not a part of their inner circle. I think this is sort of like denominational wars, like, hey, we're Baptists, they're Methodists, they shouldn't be doing that. You want me to go rebuke them? And Jesus, what does he say? He says, Well, you know, if they're not against you. They're with you. They're a part of us. Don't worry about that. I mean, just think about it. God is saying, would you just slow down? Would you listen to me? You're not in competition with the other churches. You're not in competition with the other denominations. They're with us. We got to learn to slow down and listen to the Spirit of God. I love this next story. Verse 51. Right, Jesus is heading back to Jerusalem, which is an important moment in the Gospel of Luke. This is one of our transition moments. Now Jesus is on his way back to the cross. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and so he's going to go through Samaria. He sends word ahead. Do you mind if we stop here? They say, well, if you're going to Jerusalem, we want nothing to do with you because they hated the people of Jerusalem. That's the whole racial tension that existed between them, and they said no. And so with the disciples, I think it's... um, uh, the sons of Zebedee say, well, do you want us to call down fire and destroy them? Very Jesus-like, right? Let's just call down fire and destroy these people. When I read that, I always think to myself, wouldn't it be cool to have that power? It would be dangerous so somebody would cut me off on the freeway and boom, right? Or somebody would offend one of my kids. Anyway. The truth is, in our humanness, our first reaction, our knee-jerk reaction is retribution, right? It's, it's to inflict pain on them. It's, it, it's to, to lash out. But then God says, no, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And he says, love your enemies. Be good to those who persecute you. This is not our natural, instinctive way of behaving. We have to learn to slow down and lean into the spirit of God. So Luke's not done. He goes through this whole section starting in 57 with a series of kind of uh, uh, saying to them, look, you may think walking with Jesus is going to look this way, but in fact, it's going to look very different than what you think. As a matter of fact, it's going to be much harder than you think. Walking with Jesus will be the greatest adventure you've ever been on, but it's not going to be easy. There's going to be a call to sacrifice within this, this 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 whole thing of walking out your faith. And he's saying all this so that the people won't become disenchanted, so that they'll know that, that this is is a, a great adventure, an awesome adventure. It's where the most life you'll ever have is, but it's not necessarily going to be easy. And then Luke closes out this awesome chapter with these powerful words saying, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is another one of those uh, agricultural stories that it's hard for us to understand. But here's the deal. The only way to walk out your faith is to keep your eyes on the horizon. Is to keep your eyes and your ears and your heart focused on eternity, focused on Christ. So what would happen is when somebody would literally plow a field, male, female, they would get behind the donkey if that's how they were doing it. The only way they could plow a straight furrow was to pick a point on the horizon and keep their eyes on the point on the horizon and then walk towards that point. And the minute they looked down or worse yet, looked behind them, the furrow would change. And they would make a mess of the field, and the the field would be destroyed. And Jesus is saying, look, you cannot cannot plow the field and look behind you. You cannot move forward with your eyes looking down and your eyes looking back. We need to keep our eyes on the horizon. And so many of us, so many of us are looking back. We're caught up in the way things used to be, oh, the glory days, which probably weren't as glorious as you think they were. Or we're looking back and we're caught up in our own shame and, and the, what we did wrong and how we've, we've made mistakes and we don't move forward. We're so busy looking back that we can't go straight towards what God is calling us to do. And so God is saying, no, put your heart, put your mind, put your ears towards me. The question is, what are you listening to that competes with Jesus? What's the static What's the distortion, twisted generation that we are, what is the static or the distortion that keeps you from hearing the voice of God in your life? Here at Grace, we believe that the true mark of a disciple is a person who can hear and obey. When we stop being reactionary and we slow down and we hear the voice of God in our lives and we respond appropriately... Our mission here at Grace is what? We are? Let's say it one more time all together. We are? You cannot live like Jesus if you don't learn to listen to Jesus. You need to listen to the Spirit's voice in your life. You need to learn to hear and obey if you want to be like Christ. And I know I said this earlier, but I want to say it again. When we learn to listen to Jesus, when we apply those... Ten words. This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Something changes in us and we become more and more aware of God's glory. We grow in the knowledge of God's glory and we begin to reflect that glory to others. We reflect his uniqueness. We reflect his grandeur. We reflect his his perfection. We reflect his importance. We reflect his worth. We reflect his power. We reflect his grace and mercy and his love. We don't reflect our glory we reflect the glory of God that's in us. It changes our continents. Today is communion, and I love that today's communion because this, this ordinance was put into place to help us to remember who Jesus was and to listen to him. The scriptures say before you come to communion that you should examine yourself. Maybe the best prayer for you today is, Lord, where's the static? What am I listening to that's interfering with listening to you? What do I need to do? What do I need to not do? What do I need to let go of? Lord, where am I looking back where I don't need to be looked back? Lord, Lord, show me where the static is in my life so that I can hear you more clearly. A man ought to examine himself. A person ought to examine themselves before they come to the table. Here at Grace, we believe this is for anybody who said yes to Jesus. So you don't have to be a member of grace. You don't have to be a part of our traditions. If you said yes to Jesus, we encourage you to partake uh, of the elements. If you have not said yes to Jesus, my encouragement to you is say yes to Jesus. If you're here today and your life is a mess and you know without Jesus I can't get this right, then all you need to do is say, my life is a mess. I have screwed up, Lord, and I need a savior. I need you in my life. I believe who you are. I believe you died and you rose again. Would you be the Lord and savior of my life? And then I encourage you, take communion. Enjoy it with us and come down and tell us that you've made that decision. So I'm going to ask the, the servers to come forward. And while they're passing out the elements, John's just going to play some uh, pad behind us just to, just to give us a little music. And I'm going to encourage you to use this time of just sitting here to examine yourselves. Once we all have the elements, I'm going to come back up and we'll partake of them together. So just hold on to those and we'll get started in just a few minutes.